I am not preaching a specific themed message as it relates to Father's Day today. However, I think this passage of Scripture is especially pertinent to what it means to be a kingdom man, and it applies to all of us, and I think it will be fruitful in our relationship with the Lord and what our perspective is of living the Christian life. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. We're going to consider the remainder of this chapter in a message entitled, The Coming of the Kingdom. Luke chapter 17, verse 20, through the end of the chapter. I'll read it here in just a moment. Jesus spoke several times about the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, The passage before us is one of two times that he does so specifically in Luke, with the other being in chapter 21. There are two sections here. In the first two verses, Jesus addressed questions that were coming from the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was to come. And then the remainder of the verses, he addresses his disciples on the same subject. The theme of the kingdom of God is central to the teaching of Jesus and also to the overall New Testament. In fact, kingdom is mentioned 126 times in the Gospels and then 34 more times in the remainder of the New Testament. By way of definition, the kingdom of God is the overarching rule and reign of God. He is the eternal God who carries out his sovereign will. We have the privilege of being a part of that if our faith is in him. And as Psalm 103 and verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. The kingdom of God is also the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and the lives of all who have submitted to his authority by faith. And the kingdom of God is present and future. It's present in the sense that it's already a reality in Jesus and his finished work. Is present because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And then it is yet future because it has not been fully consummated. It's not been completely fulfilled. Now, it's interesting in the New Testament that there are a number of different illustrations that are given that are common illustrations, but they seek to show us something by way of comparison to help us understand more about the kingdom. We find the illustrations of a farmer sowing seed, a man hunting treasure, a woman kneading dough, a fisherman who is casting a net, a man who is forgiven a debt, a wedding guest who has forgotten their garment, virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom, a landowner who is being generous, seed, yeast, a pearl, fish, a banquet, a vineyard, and more. Each of these illustrations serve to draw our attention in and to show us the meaning of the kingdom, how it would start small but grow to be very big, and the importance of our being prepared as a part of the kingdom. Now, admittedly, this whole concept of the kingdom is a little bit challenging for us in our 21st century context because where we live, we do not have an earthly king. Uh, We do not live in an earthly kingdom. But to the people of Jesus' day, it would have been very familiar 
because they understood that the king was the one who had the highest authority. He ruled over everything in his kingdom. He was responsible for the well-being of the citizens of his kingdom as well as asking them to do whatever he wanted them to do. Everything that was within, within the boundaries of the kingdom that he ruled over belonged to the king. Well, our understanding of the Bible is that God is the supreme king. God is the one who is above every earthly king and every earthly power. His kingdom is all-encompassing. And this idea of the kingdom is directly relatable to our individual lives, to our families, to how our church is focused, to our impact in the community, and then in all the world. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, the Bible says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he being Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see there or see here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Now verse 37. Where, Lord, they asked him. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. I want to show you three truths about the coming of the kingdom of God from the teaching of Jesus, followed by application of kingdom principles for disciples of Jesus. Truth number one, the kingdom of God was revealed in Jesus. The kingdom of God was revealed in Jesus. Now, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. It was a good question because Jesus had been preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. This is the first of several places where there's a request 
for clarity about what the kingdom is and where it leads and the nature of the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees were likely looking for a physical establishment of the kingdom. In other words, they're thinking about the old Davidic kingdom. They're thinking maybe about the promises that went all the way back uh, to Abram. And they're thinking about God establishing a physical kingdom and ruling over that and what their role in it might be. So they're looking for a localized beginning, uh, maybe in the form even of a political movement. But they're uh, assuming that the kingdom of God is basically a future event. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question in two ways. First, Jesus told them that they would not be able to tell the coming of the kingdom simply through their observations. Now, evidently, the Pharisees were hoping to recognize the coming of the kingdom through uh, observation and through assessment. The kingdom of God, uh, after all, does not lack evidence, but the evidence is not self-interpreting. And because the evidence is not self-interpreting, what seems obvious might not be so obvious if you're not thinking in the spiritual direction that you're supposed to be thinking. It certainly would not come through doubting eyes or through some type of hostile examination of Jesus in order to get to the point that they wanted to get to. Back in Luke chapter 12 and verse 54 and following, it says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? The problem was not a lack of signs. Jesus had performed many miracles. He had demonstrated himself to be the authenticated Messiah, the one who had come from heaven to earth. The problem was their spiritual inability to understand the signs that were before them. Second, Jesus told them that the kingdom was in their midst. In fact, verse 21 says, for you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, I think this phrase is is somewhat misunderstood because it is also translated, the kingdom of God is within you. So it's in your midst and it is within you. Well, it is within you is an accurate understanding for believers who know Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God is within us. Uh, The Spirit, of course, had not yet come at this point, but Jesus was likely uh, making the point to them that the kingdom of God was present through faith, through a relationship with God. But when he says the kingdom of God is in your midst, he's indicating that it is within your reach. It is within your possession. Or to state it even more plainly, Jesus was standing right in front of them. So here he was standing in front of them and he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is right in front of you. And what they needed to do and what we need to do is acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. The king himself was giving a kingdom message in kingdom power and yet they didn't recognize what was taking place. The kingdom was already active whether they realized it or not. Then Jesus turns his attention to the disciples. 
having answered the Pharisees, he's going to speak more directly to his disciples. Now, his disciples, after all, would see the resurrected Lord. They would see him ascend back into heaven and the promise given that he was coming again just as he had gone. Uh, But none of them would experience his second coming. We still await his return. And yet they longed to know him and to experience that, and we do as well today. And here was the danger. As time passed and Jesus did not return after he had ascended, it would be easy to get discouraged. It would be easy to become cynical. It might be a temptation to lose heart. And Jesus said that we will long to see his return and we'll be told there he is or here he is, look here or look there. And what does Jesus say? Don't go running after that because it's going to be obviously apparent when it happens. Dr. Charles Feinberg, who is a Jewish Christian scholar, uh, said that in the course of Israel's history since the time of Jesus, there have been 64 different individuals who have claimed to be the Messiah. Now, my guess would be that that number would be far greater even today than when he stated that, uh, but those were the notable, identifiable ones that uh, he knew about. And Jesus knew that was going to happen, that people were going to be led astray, and they're going to be looking for all these things. And then he speaks here in verse 24 about it. He says, For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Now, I find lightning to be an interesting part of nature. Did you know that it strikes the earth an average of 100 times a second. Now, I know that it's relatively sunny outside today, at least for now. We'll see what happens later on. But did you know that around the globe, lightning is striking the earth 100 times a second, all the time? In fact, there are as many as 3 billion lightning strikes a year globally on the face of the planet. And when you see it in the sky, it's the discharge of electricity that travels between the clouds or to the ground. The thunder that you hear is the rapid expansion of the air in response to the intense heat of the lightning. And the speed of light is so fast that you can't even detect exactly what the travel time is. And based on the curvature of the earth, theoretically, you could see lightning as far as 300 miles away at the top of a storm. Now, of course, light uh, refraction is going to minimize that distance, and realistically, they say that the maximum amount of something that you could see might be more like 100 miles away. But Jesus gives us this by way of comparison, and he says the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, but the appearance won't be localized. It won't just be a storm that's taking place right now as we're together in the middle of the Amazon that people are observing. It won't be a storm that's in the middle of the continent of Africa somewhere right now where the lightning is hitting the ground that only those people in the surrounding area can see. It won't be the people that are somewhere in the mountains of Asia right now with a thunderstorm and the rain coming down and only they can see that lightning. Oh no, the coming of the Son of Man will be as evident as lightning that, cra- that crashes across the sky and uh, clearly will be visible 
to everybody in the whole earth. In fact, one commentator wrote, his great appearing will be uh, cosmic, like a thousand, 24,000 mile long lightning bolts simultaneously ringing the earth. All will see this. They'll see it in the Middle East. They'll see it across the steppes of Russia and into Siberia. They'll see it in Asia and in China and Australia and Europe and Africa and in the Americas and on all the world's islands. They'll see it at the North Pole and the South Pole. Nobody is going to miss it. Now, what are we to live like in light of such a prophecy? Or to ask an even deeper question here, what is the point of prophecy? Is it so that we can speculate? Is it so that we can say, look here and go there and figure out what this means and, and mark out the timing exactly as it's going to happen, which is impossible for us to do on this side of eternity? No, that's not the point of prophecy at all. The point of prophecy is so that we can submit ourselves to the living God. It's so that our lives can be lived in the time that God has given us in anticipation of what's still to come, recognizing that this is not all that there is. And the kingdom of God was revealed in Jesus. Truth number two, the kingdom of God required suffering by Jesus. Note, if you will, verse 25. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, let me just remind you of a Bible study principle here. There are numerous passages of Scripture where we find both present and future. And if we read what's happening in the present to mean that it's something in the future, or if we overlay something in the future on the present, we might confuse ourselves. Jesus has given us both present and future here. He's speaking of what's going to happen when the Son of Man returns, but he says, first, this has to happen. We cannot skip the cross and go straight to the consummation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God would not come and be manifested on the earth as it is now until the king went to the cross. Think about the suffering of Jesus. It was something that was prophesied. Psalm 22 and verse 14 says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. Verse 17, I count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22, long before that ever happened in the suffering of Jesus. Or Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. You see, the Lord Jesus was despised and rejected by others. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering and pain. That means that he had an intimate, first-hand knowledge with suffering. No stranger to what we would experience. Meaning that there is no valley of the shadow of death that you can go through on this earth that Jesus Christ cannot identify with. And not only was his suffering 
prophesied his suffering was necessary. Back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 22, the scripture says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The scripture says that Jesus must suffer, that he must be killed. The suffering of Jesus was God's plan of salvation for the world. And it was at the cross that Jesus willingly took our suffering upon himself. He took the pain upon himself. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So what took place in the suffering of Jesus? He suffered once for sins. That the purpose of his suffering was that he would do so in our place. That that he would experience the wrath of God laid upon him. He would experience the suffering that we deserved. That Jesus would die the death that we deserved. And what the suffering of Jesus does is it points us to the devastating nature of the effects of sin. And when we see what Jesus endured on the cross on our behalf, and we understand the depths of the suffering that he experienced for us, we'll realize the magnitude of our sin, and we'll understand that there was no way that our sin could be removed apart from God intervening for us. And Jesus, the just, suffered for the unjust. It was the guiltless one suffering for the guilty. And it was God laying our sins on him, our iniquity on him, so that we might be forgiven. See, the character of God shows us that God is holy and he cannot forgive sin unless justice is exacted. If justice was not exacted for our sins, then it would violate the holy character of God to forgive us. But as someone said, Jesus took our hell on Calvary. And I think that's a good descriptor. Jesus took our hell on Calvary. And why did he do it? He suffered that he might bring us to God. God puts our sin away by accepting the payment for our debt that Jesus paid. And what he did on the cross accomplished salvation for us. So here's the heart of the gospel. Don't miss this. This is why it's good news. If you repent and believe in Jesus, you'll be reconciled to God. That's the simplicity of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not about a religion. There's no religion that could bring us back to God. There are no good deeds that could bring us back to God. There's no measure of our righteousness that it could ever bring us to God. There's only one way that we can come back to God in his name is Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the greatest need that any of us have, now or eternally, is to be reconciled to God. God's the one who's given you physical life. God is the one who has brought you into this world. And God is the one who rules over all of eternity. And if those things are true, then your greatest need is to know God. And that's the message of the kingdom. You can be reconciled to God, forgiven and freed. 
in a relationship with God who reigns over his creation. So why did God crucify his only son? Because he loves sinners like us. We are saved from sin and to the Savior, from death and to life, from shame and to glory, from bondage and to freedom, from darkness and to light. All because will, the willingness of Jesus to suffer for us. Truth number three, the kingdom of God demands readiness for Jesus. The kingdom of God demands readiness for Jesus. Now, we've already noted that the kingdom of God is a present reality. Now, actually, that's kind of easy to miss. And you know why it's easy to miss? Because we get caught up living life on this earth. We can get easily distracted and forget whose kingdom it is that we reside in. We get so wrapped up in what we're trying to do just to survive here that we forget that it's not only in the future that we can experience the kingdom of God, but it's now. That this king is inviting us into his kingdom, and the heart of that invitation into the kingdom is a relationship with him. So we can experience something now that is far greater than anything that this earth has to offer. So don't get caught up in this life and forget that the kingdom of God is a present reality. But the remainder of this passage points us to the fact that the kingdom of God is also still to come in its consummation in the future. It is not yet fully realized. And we know that because Jesus gives us two examples. The first being Noah. And he says people are just eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're, they're doing their thing. He says it's going to be the same way in the coming of the Son of Man. And then he gives the example of Lot. When Lot left Sodom, that place of moral degradation, fire and sulfur rain from heaven, And he said people were just going about their deal. They were just doing what they did. And he compares the coming of the kingdom with these two examples. Now here's what I know for sure about these verses. The focus is on judgment. And not only is the focus on judgment, but the focus is on the fact that people were not ready when the judgment came. And Jesus is telling us that in the future, you need to be ready when judgment comes. Don't be like the people were in the days of Noah when the flood came and they were going about their business and they weren't ready. Don't be like the people were in the days of Lot when judgment fell on Sodom and the people were just doing their thing and they weren't ready. Oh, no. He says that the kingdom demands a readiness for Jesus. And be careful about going about your daily life without an awareness of God, unprepared for judgment. Now let's dig a little bit deeper here. Jesus indicated that the man on the housetop, he wouldn't have time to go back for his belongings in the house. The man in the field should not turn back. There'd be two in the bed and one to be left and one to be taken. There'd be two grinding grain, same situation. And some people have taught this passage to specifically mean the timing of the rapture. And if that's your interpretation of it, we can talk later. But here's the problem with that particular interpretation. The whole focus is on judgment. That's what he's talking about. Those taken away, I believe, are taken into judgment. 
And those who are left behind are those who enter into the kingdom. And Jesus is uh, being questioned here by the disciples. And he, he's, he's asked a deeper question, but, but where? And what's his answer in verse 37? It's a little bit cryptic, but let's read it again. Where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. He's talking about judgment. What does a dead body do that's left out in the open? A dead body draws the vultures to gather on it. And he's saying people who are unprepared for the coming judgment, who are not ready for the kingdom, will be in the same situation. And he says you better be ready. So regardless of how you specifically come down on these particular verses, two things are emphatically in view. The reality of judgment and the necessity of readiness. The reality of accountability to God and the absolute need for us to be ready to meet him. Now Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, has won the victory and he rescues us from judgment. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a part of his family living under his rule. You are a citizen of the kingdom. And you are living in the tension of the living by faith in the moment mentality and the not yet. Live for Jesus now, but be ready for Jesus to come in the future. Make sure that your life's going in the right direction now, but be ready for what's to come. And the only way that we can be ready for what is to come is if our faith is in the one who rules over the kingdom. He's the king. He's our destiny. He's the one who gives us the kingdom. And this kingdom of God requires, it demands readiness for Jesus. Now I want to draw your attention just for another moment to verse 33 before I close with application. Note what verse 33 says. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Friends, do not organize your life by the rules of this present world. Don't focus on status and security and possessions and everything that the world has to offer you. Because all of those things are ultimately fleeting. All those th- of those things are ultimately temporary. And if you spend your time and your energy identifying with the values of what happens on this earth, rather than the values of the kingdom of God, what's going to happen is you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you focus on what matters to God, you're going to be eternally blessed. And let me give you some points of application here for disciples of Jesus' kingdom principles as I come toward a close. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What I want to say to you is you've got to decide whose kingdom you will pursue. That's application point number one. Decide whose kingdom you will pursue. In other words, God has a purpose for your life, and you can either follow after that purpose, or you can try to chart your own purpose. But what's always going to happen is that is going to come into conflict for what God has for you. 
if in fact he's the king of the kingdom, and if in fact this kingdom is eternal, and it's going to outlast everything that this world has to offer, then why would we pursue a purpose in this life that is contrary to the eternal purpose that God has for us and be left disappointed when it's all said and done? Decide whose kingdom you're going to pursue. And then second, determine the kingdom priorities you will live by. Purpose is the mission of your life. Vision are the priorities that drive and shape your life. What you value, what you care about, what you spend your time on, what's really important to you, what you think is significant, and how you shape your life speaks to what your priorities are. And let me say to you, especially fathers, you are the point person in the family that God has given to you if you are an earthly father. And whatever course you chart is going to have a profound impact on those who follow you. And you better understand, you are leaving a legacy of some sort. It's not are you leaving a legacy, it's what kind of legacy are you leaving. And let's make sure that we're leaving one that honors Christ that's living according to kingdom priorities. And then the third and final point of application is dedicate the best you have toward the kingdom. You will invest your resources, your time, your energies, your talents, your treasures, your spiritual gifts, all these things. You're going to invest them somewhere. So you just well invest them in something that lasts. What a profound disappointment it would be If God blessed you richly and you took what God gave to you and you invested it in stuff that was temporary, you got to the end of the whole thing and you found out that you were investing in something that was not going to last. What a disappointment that's going to be and really what a tragedy that would be for your life. But God says that you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And when you invest in something that lasts, you will dedicate the very best that you have toward the kingdom of God. And that means that you can't play it being a Christian. That means you can't just give God your leftovers. That means that you can't just live a lukewarm Christian existence When Jesus Christ invites you into the kingdom, what Jesus Christ is inviting you to is himself, a relationship with him. And it's a relationship that is transformative. And because he's worthy, you want to dedicate the very best that you have to him. You understand you can't ever repay him. You don't even try. It'd be an insult to think that somehow you're repaying God for all that he's done for you because you could never measure up. It's all of grace. It's grace that we enter into the kingdom by. It's grace that we invest our resources in the kingdom by. It's grace that will safely lead us home into the eternal presence of God. And I say to you today, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the invitation. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you've already repented and believed in the gospel and trusted in Christ, would you ask the Holy Spirit just to help you think about where your life is now and whether or not you're living according to a kingdom purpose, applying kingdom principles, investing your very best? If not, 
God can help you draw closer to himself. Just as he invited you into the kingdom, what he's saying to you is lean in. Don't, don't stay over there on the peripheral somewhere. Don't just be glad that you got into the kingdom. You want to be in the middle of the whole thing. And then right at the center is Christ himself. He's the one who is worthy. And he draws us to himself. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, you know the needs in this room. And those who are listening online today or maybe be listening to this message later on. What an incredible blessing it is that we can be a part of your kingdom, something that is eternal, that is far greater than ourselves. And we just simply say in humility and with thanksgiving, thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you were willing to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, that you were buried and on the third day you were raised from the dead, that you ascended back into heaven to the right hand of God the Father, and you will soon return. May we not be discouraged or lose hope or lose heart, but help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, knowing that you're coming again. And when you come again, we're going to be accountable for how we've lived, the faithfulness that we've lived with, especially as it relates to our eternal rewards. And God, we just have a simple prayer. Find us faithful. Help us to live by the grace of that you've extended to us. I know enough to know that in a crowd this size today that there are some who've not yet entered into the kingdom through repentance and faith. They don't yet know you. God, maybe you're working in somebody's heart right now who would want to repent and believe and come to Jesus right now in this moment. I pray they would trust in you by faith. I pray for all of our men who have responsibility to lead their families and to lead in, their church, in this church and to lead in their responsibilities in the world. Help us to be like Christ as we do that. In all things, Father, may you be glorified in our lives now and always. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.